We want to issue a special welcome to all of our guests. We're grateful that you're here. Those of you who are tuning in via the World Wide Web, we thank you for, for coming our way. Boy, did you pick the right weekend to do so. We're putting an exclamation mark on the end of our Summer in the Hills series, Saving the Best for Last. Jennifer Rothschild has graced us with her presence, and what a story she will bring to us. When she was 15 years of age, she began to notice a deterioration in her eyesight. Within short order, her eyesight had completely gone. She had aspirations of uh, becoming a commercial artist. But over the last years, God has used her not to draw pictures on paper, but to tell stories and write words upon people's hearts. What a powerful testimony she brings. She speaks to women and men all over the world. I've met her through the Women of Faith organization where she addresses thousands of women and encouraging them to see with faith and walk by faith and not by sight. Join me in giving a great Oak Hills welcome to our guest speaker, Jennifer Ross. One more time. One more time. Yes, sir. Thank you, Angela. Well, good morning, friends of God. I am so glad to be with you today. I have dear friends that go to this church, actually work at this church. Jerry True and his beautiful wife, Karen, are dear friends of mine, and it's an honor to be with them. And of course, I have admired for years the worldwide ministry of your pastor, and it's been a delight to be around his gentle spirit. I live in Springfield, Missouri, and there are three people I love that I left in Springfield, Missouri this weekend. My two sons, Clayton is 20, Connor is 11. They are one month shy of being 10 years apart. And then my husband, Philip. My husband, Phil, is a professor at Missouri State University, which means he has his PhD. You know, in order to teach, he needs his doctorate degree. So since he has a PhD, and since his name is Phil, I have my very own Dr. Phil. <laughs> but this morning, I would love to begin by asking you a question. Is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? I, I didn't ask if it was well with your finances or if it is well with your health or if it is well with your family. I asked, is it well with your soul? It was the late 70s, and I was a teenage girl, and I loved music. And so the first thing in the morning, as soon as I would wake up, I would turn on my radio, and usually someone like Ronnie Millsap or Karen Carpenter would come over the airwaves. And whenever Debbie Boone started singing, You Light Up My Life, I would grab my hairbrush, and I would run to the mirror, and I would sing along. And so now many of you know about how old I am. I also at about that same time loved to write in my diary. I had just gotten my first diary. And I wrote down everything. Anything I was thinking about. My dreams. My fears. The boys at school that were cute. And if they talked to me, that would take up a full page. 
And in the margins of my journal, of my diary, I used to draw caricatures, especially. You see, I loved studying the human face, and, and I, I loved art, and I loved the shadows and nuances of color and of texture, and so to me, the human face was just, I, I used to study it, the way God sculpted his image, and, and, and the way expressions would change, and just the inherent beauty in the face, but what I really loved to do was to be able to discern a personality, and then grab that personality and communicate it through exaggerating the features on a face, and so word got around in my junior high that I was an okay artist, and so I was chosen by my class to design and draw the banner that we would hold up and it would lead us to victory on field day. So I went with my mom to the store and we got a, a brand new bed sheet. I brought it to school still in its package. And with a friend, I went to the school gymnasium and we unwrapped that package unfurled the bedsheet on the floor of the gym, and I knelt in front of it, and I began to sketch a lion. Well, as I was sketching the lion, I, I noticed there was um, dust, what looked like dust on the sheet toward the left, and of course I tried to wipe it away, but it remained. As I focused on that lion, I could tell that up toward the, the top right part of the sheet, it was as if someone had taken a black magic marker and jammed it onto the sheet. There were black dots everywhere. And of course, I tried to get those off of the sheet. And they remained. Well, finally, I said to my friend, I don't get it. This was a brand new bed sheet. I can't believe it's so dirty. And her reply was, Jennifer, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a perfectly white bed sheet. That was the first time I had any indication that maybe something was wrong with my eyes. But, but I didn't say anything to my mom and dad. It was a few weeks later that my mother and I were going to visit a friend who lived in an upstairs apartment. And as we ventured up those stairs in the dimly lit stairwell, I was stumbling and tripping up those stairs. And, and my mom stopped mid-stride and said, Jennifer, can you not see those stairs? Well, my response to her was just as incredulous. What do you mean? Can you see those stairs, Mom? I just thought I was clumsy. Well, it didn't take long till my mother had me to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor had me to an eye hospital. And after several days of testing at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida, which is where we lived at the time, the doctors had my mom and dad and me to sit down in a conference room where they discussed what they had discovered with my eyes. They told me I had a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. It was degenerative, occurred in both of my retinas, and at that point enough of my retinas had deteriorated that I was declared legally blind. But the doctors told us the, di the actual prognosis of the disease was total blindness. Blindness is just one of those words you don't ever think is going to be your word. It's the kind of word like cancer or autism or Down syndrome. You just don't expect some words to be your word. 
And when blindness was spoken, it fell straight to the bottom of my soul. It scraped on its way down everything that was once secure and predictable, and it just left me silent. Just kind of that soul silence that comes from real darkness. We left that conference room and we got in the car to, to ride home. It was about a 45 minute drive and I sat in the back seat and I remember staring into the front seat at the back of my daddy's head and I would see his knuckles on the steering wheel occasionally as he would turn and I kept wondering if he was gonna say anything. Because you see, my dad was my pastor. And it was from him that I learned, since I was a very little girl, about the goodness of God, the grace of Jesus. He was silent. My mom also was silent. <laughs> I'm a mother. I understand her silence. There's a deep burden a mother carries for a child. There are prayers that are too intense for words. Many of you know what they sound like. God, please just let it be me. Just let it be me. I sat in the back seat and felt my fingertips and wondered, am I, am I gonna have to read Braille? And I'm never gonna be able to drive a car and I'm not gonna be able to be an artist and are boys gonna wanna date me? And The list of questions was far longer than the list of answers, and that's how it is when adversity or darkness comes into our lives. It brings with it a lot of questions. When we finally got home, I went in and I sat down at our old upright piano. We'd had it for many years. I got it when I was a kid, just in the third grade, and I had had a very on-again, off-again relationship with my piano, and my skill level reflected it. I was not a great pianist, but this day I, I sat down at that piano and I began to play in a way I had never played before. I could no longer see the sheet music from which I once read. I did not on that day play a song I had once memorized, but instead I played by ear for the very first time and I understood what I was doing on that piano in a way I had never understood before. And it was as if God, in, in, his, in his mercy, though it seemed perhaps severe, had allowed one door for a 15-year-old girl to close at an eye hospital, but had allowed another to open right there on my piano keyboard as he enabled me to play by ear. And though the gift of music was astounding to me, what was far more astounding is not that I played the piano, but it was what I played on the piano. Because the song that God gave me that flowed through my heart and out my fingers, the song that filled my living room, the song that to this very day still serves as a candle in my darkness, is that old beloved hymn, It is well with my soul. 
God has allowed me in the classroom of blindness to learn many lessons and lots of them have been hard. But he established for me the foundational lesson that day, I believe, on that piano bench. Where he taught me that it may not be well with my circumstances. It may never be well with my circumstances. But it can be well with my soul. And so I ask you again, is it well with your soul? I went back to high school and my folks um, took me out of my large public school in Miami and put me in a smaller Christian school. Just knowing it would be a little easier, of course, to navigate all the changes and the new challenges. Well, word got around very quickly in this new little Christian school that the new girl couldn't see. Well, that meant that the new girl became very popular to be asked on on dates because these boys, they knew I could not see how ugly they really were. <laughs> and so, um, now those of you who were going to high school about the same time I was, or you might remember there was a show on TV in the early 80s called Magnum P.I. Some of you remember that, don't you? You're so old. <laughs> And the ladies in the room will certainly remember who the guy was that was starring in, in Magnum P.I. Tom Selleck, exactly. Well, see, Tom Selleck was a good-looking man, and for those of you who are a little younger, he was like our big hunk of the day, you know, kind of like Brad Pitt's a good-looking man. Well, that's what Tom Selleck was to us. I think it is so neat that God would have let one of my last visual memories be Tom Selleck. <laughs> Well, these boys in my high school tried to capitalize upon his popularity and convince me to go out with them on dates by telling me they look just like Tom Selleck. <laughs> Only one man ever convinced me of such. And we have been married 24 years. <clears throat> high school brought with it lots of changes. But one thing it awakened within me because of blindness was this desire for independence. And, and it seems that when difficulty comes into our life, it reminds us of our dependence, of our frailty. And so I wanted so much to be able to prove to myself that I could do something independent. And, and so I decided I would go away to college. So after I graduated from high school, I was going to leave on August 14th to be a freshman on the campus of Palm Beach Atlantic University. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. Until August 13th. I was terrified. Suddenly, the reality of it just scared me to death. And I remember getting my mom and calling her out, and we sat in the front yard under the oak tree, and... I mean, I, I cried, I begged, I negotiated, I lamented, I did everything I knew. Mom, please don't make me go to college. I can't go to college. I, I'm afraid to go to college. I don't know anybody. I, I, I mean, I had just learned how to walk with a white cane, but I had no confidence. And at that point, I felt like all I really had was that cane and my relationship with Jesus, and neither of them had been tested in the real world. And I was terrified. Fear is like that, isn't it? It makes us want to stay where we are and never move. But my mom said, Jennifer, you have to go to college. You've prepared to go, and you have to go. 
but you only have to go to college for two weeks. And if you can't handle it, your daddy and I will come pick you up. Well, it was quite an arrangement. I got to Palm Beach Atlantic College and I flipped out my cane with just enough attitude to make it through 14 days, no more, no less. Just gonna meet contractual obligations. Well, one day in the cafeteria line within the first two weeks, I met this guy with bushy, bushy blonde hair and this wonderful smile and charisma about him and his gentle confidence and can-do spirit. And he had these awesome Tom Selleck shoulders. You know, women especially have asked me, now how would you know such a thing, you know, being that you can't see him? And I, I'll just tell you one of the benefits of going to a Christian college was I got to hug my brothers in Christ. <laughs> so I knew I loved my brother's shoulders. I loved everything about him. And I called my mom within the first two weeks of school and I said, Mom, I've met this guy named Philip Rothschild. Please don't ever make me come home from college again. And oh, what I would have missed if on August 13th, my fear had been allowed to dominate me. When difficulty comes into our life, when it is not well with our circumstances, I'm convinced that sometimes what is even harder than the circumstance itself is the fear that comes on the heels of it. What if I never get well? What if I can't find a job? What if my baby has to go out into the real world and the real world is cruel? What if I never gain the peace in life that I'm longing for because my disease is eating me up? What if? Fear speaks the words, what if? And I was feeling them big time. And many of you in this room, it is August 13th. And you have your entire future with so many potential blessings God wants to grant you, those treasures in the darkness. But the fear is so powerful it makes you want to hide. I get that. I just want you to know out of integrity and love for Jesus, I don't share with you a story that I learned 25 years ago. I share with you an example from 25 years ago, but I am living the story today. I know how powerful fear is. I know how it scares you. I know how it makes you want to hide. Even this weekend, before I got up yesterday to go get on an airplane. My first thought was this sense of fatigue of, oh, I can't, I can't go navigate another airport. I, I can't go deal with another hotel room. I just, I get so tired of it, Lord. I'm just, I'm tired. And and then the fear, and it was overwhelming last night. Lord, help me not to fall off the stage. Lord, help me to find my rug. What if I can't find my orientation? What if I'm speaking to the left wall instead of the people in the audience? <laughs> what if it's the language of fear and it's very real? This morning, first thing, I bent over in the bathroom and banged my eye on a half wall. And do you know what I actually thought? Do I have to go to church today, God? I'm tired of this. If this is happening here in my bathroom, how am I gonna manage a car and a stair and a stage in another airport? I, I'm afraid. 
Fear is real. And I don't discount it. And there is no condemnation if you're struggling with it. I'm convinced fear and faith share the same heartbeat at times. But the thing is, though fear is real, your faith is real. Though fear is powerful, your faith is more powerful. And that which you esteem highly in your life is that which will dominate you. May we never esteem our fear more highly than our faith. But by the grace of God, can we humbly with meekness kneel before God? And when our knees kneel before God, our faith must bow to his sovereignty and power. And therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. There are many lessons I have learned but I have realized that probably what helps me the most on my darkest days is to try to keep my perspective that of an eternal perspective. When our oldest son Clayton was seven, he and I were playing a game on his bedroom floor. He had found a new game. It was very tactile. And because he's my little thinker, he had figured out how it was going to be a good game for he and his mom to play. And you know, it's hard to find games that my boys can play with me that they don't obviously smear me at the game. But this one he thought would work. After he had it all set up, I began to play the game and it didn't go well. I was knocking over game pieces and marbles were rolling and our frustration was growing. And I said, son, you need to get a different game. He began to dutifully clean it up. He was silent. I could tell he was thinking. And so, before I tell you what he said, you need to know that Clayton, since he was just a little man, had prayed that God would heal mommy's eyes. He wanted me to be able to see. Understanding that, you'll realize why what he said was so significant. Mom, he said, I don't think God will heal you here on earth. And I asked him why. And he said, because I think God wants you to love heaven more. And if he healed you here on earth, you might love earth more. The Apostle Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, because of our eternal perspective, because heaven is best. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, it is not well with our circumstances. Inwardly, daily, we are being renewed. And these light and temporary troubles, and can I ask you if they feel light? They don't, do they? Why does Paul call them light and temporary troubles when they're things like blindness and autism and diabetes and depression and poverty? Why does he call them light and temporary? Because even that which is terminal is temporary. And though your burden may feel so heavy, my brothers and sisters, in light of eternity, it is considered light. Why? Because it is working for you a far greater weight of glory. Romans 8.18 says that Paul does not even regard his sufferings to be compared to the glory. 
And that greater weight of glory that you will experience will remind you of the truth that heaven is best because things that are seen are temporary, but that which is unseen is eternal. It is well with my soul because God out of his mercy has chosen to not deliver me from blindness, but every step of the day, every step of the way, he is delivering me through blindness. It is well with my soul because God has chosen to allow blindness in my life to refine me so that I look more like him and less like me rather than to simply define me. It is well with my soul because God in his power could grant me healing. But it is well with my soul because he didn't just settle for mere physical healing. He has instead given me contentment. It is my deepest prayer for you that you would experience contentment and that it would be well with your souls. God bless you.